Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 23, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Again, my name is Rick. I'm author of the just-released book Spiritual Grit and the uh, sort of tentpole book that we call it around here, The Jesus-Centered Life, kind of the book that coalesced all of my life and perspective on what following Jesus is really all about and how your life can be in every way immersed in his presence. That was my stab at it in the Jesus-Centered Life, and that was published just after we released our Jesus-Centered Bible, which I was the general editor for. That was a two-year project to create a Bible that, no matter where you're reading it, it sort of magnetically draws you closer to the heart of Jesus through all of these special features we developed and embedded in the Bible. So that's the Jesus-Centered Bible a fantastic summer, just-because-it's-Wednesday gift to somebody in your life, by the way. So today, we launch into a two-month exploration of something that really confounds us about Jesus. It surfaced, actually, the reason I was thinking about this is because somebody posted a, like, not just a negative review of Spiritual Grit on Amazon, but like a flamethrower negative review of Spiritual Grit on on uh, Amazon. You know, I read the reviews that people have for the book, and, and there's like 40 reviews on there, and there's only one negative one, and man, is it negative. This guy, he, he must be a pig, because, you know, our pig is a metaphor for someone who really goes all in, because this guy went all in on his review. So here's what he said, and I'll tell you why this sparked something in me that we're going to explore over the next two months. So here's what he said. Uh, it's a great, it's a great beginning to his review. Worst book I ever read. <laughs> the book reads as one run-on sentence from beginning to end. One minute the author portrays Jesus as loving, and then as insensitive. No spiritual grit to be had. So of course I don't know this person personally, but there is spiritual grit to be had in the book. But the thing that struck me was his middle sentence. One minute the author portrays Jesus as loving and then as insensitive. So he's really saying this is kind of a ridiculous and confusing portrayal of Jesus. Is he loving or is he insensitive? Which is it? And this caught me because, first of all, if I could talk to the guy, I would say, uh, sorry, buddy, that really is Jesus. <laughs> he is both those things. There's no other way to get around it. When you read Jesus in the New Testament as if you'd never had any preconceived notions about him, you'd have to say he's this incredible mix of dichotomous behaviors. It's this incredible mix of dissonant behaviors. So I love how the author Peter Kreeft describes Jesus. Uh, he calls him a shocking wonder. I just love that. I think it's so as a distinct and short description of Jesus, I think that's one of the best I've ever heard, a shocking wonder. And in that spirit, uh, approach Jesus with an open mind as you read him in the New Testament. 
he's certainly shockingly tough, and he's certainly shockingly tender. He's both things. So he offended people not just because of his tough talk, but also because he was way more tender than he was supposed to be with people he should have avoided and ignored in the first place. It's, it's interesting that if you think about how Jesus offended people, we often think, well, it's the bad names he called the Pharisees and the, the very colorful and descriptive ways that he criticized them. And we think about that with his tough talk, and that's, that's what was really shocking about him. But actually, people were shocked and offended more by the tender, unallowable ways that he treated people with kindness. Uh, like, just, just for an instance, you, you know, he's at a, a highfalutin religious leader social gathering, it's invitation only, with all the best people in, in town, and a woman of ill repute finds out he's there and invites herself into the party, finds Jesus, and breaks an alabaster vial of perfume over his feet, and then proceeds to cry on his feet and wash his feet with her, with her hair. And this is like a scandalous scene in the New Testament, and everyone in the room is appalled by this behavior except for Jesus, who treats her with shocking tenderness. Uh, he, he's just—he he recognizes the care and passion that, that she's displaying to him, and, and he treats her with incredible tenderness, which just scandalizes everybody in the room. So in June, we're going to pay ridiculous attention to the aspects of Jesus that are undeniably tough. And in July, that whole month, we'll focus on his shocking tenderness. So we'll try to combine or merge these two aspects of Jesus and to, to embrace him as he really is. And to the guy that had the negative view about Spiritual Grid on Amazon, I would want to say, in order to uh, understand Jesus and the depth of his heart and his love for us, you have to embrace both of these sort of opposite extremes in him. And that's what we're going to do for the next couple of months. So uh, in the rest of this month, in June, we'll be focusing on the, the, the tough aspects of Jesus. And just as a teaser, next week's episode, we're going to focus on hell. So I told Steph Hilbury, my partner in crime here, that I thought, well, if we're going to focus on hell, how, what if I would interview someone who's currently in hell for this one? And she told me that was logistically impossible. So... Sorry, we won't be able to do that. It's probably not wise to ask you for suggestions of who to interview who's currently in hell. But uh, since it's logistically impossible, we're not going to do that. So we've explored uh, in a previous episode Thomas Christensen's book, The Unreasonable Jesus. We did a whole episode on that, and such a great way to describe Jesus. He's so unreasonable in so many instances. But, you, you know, a corollary to that, we could also call Jesus the dissonant Jesus. He produces dissonance or tension in us because he says and does things that seem contradictory. So um, Jesus is really hard for us to categorize because of this, when he says one thing and in one place and seems to contradict himself in another place. Carl, Carl Medeiros and I, on the last episode of this podcast, talked a little bit about that, that that's actually part of the magnetism of Jesus, is that um, he he's lives somewhere in the tension of this dissonance. And so Jesus is really hard for us to categorize 
And the problem with that is we're addicted to categorizing people. Um, in fact, that we do it without even knowing it. So here's some examples from, you know, some cultural examples. So just for yourself, you know, if you're alone in a car listening to this, you could answer these questions out loud right now. So uh, thinking about how we categorize things and people. So are video games bad or good? What's your immediate response? Are video games bad or good? Or what's your immediate response when I ask you, is Roseanne Barr a good person or a bad person? Or is the Kardashian phenomenon, you know, being, uh, being famous for being famous, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or here's one, is an assault weapon ban a good thing or a bad thing? Or are dogs better than cats? We can end with that one. So I see right now Adam shaking his head through the glass, and I. It, what's, what's interesting is that that's not a yes or no question. Are dogs better than cats? He just started shaking his head. So we still don't know which way Adam leans on this one, but... We like to categorize these things, and we and we often have an immediate response to these things. And categorizing things in people helps us to navigate our world. Uh, we don't we don't really uh, think outside of categories in a normal in our normal everyday life because we don't like dissonance. We like to be able to pin things down and pin people down. So another way of saying that is. You know, a lot of America might have read Fifty Shades of Grey, but we sure don't like to live in the gray. I think that's probably a bad mixed metaphor, but we definitely don't like to live in the gray. Okay, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, as part of a leadership retreat, I had to take the Kiersey Temperament Sorter, which is kind of the oddest name for a personality test out there, but it's quite famous... It uh, it's been around for uh, uh, several decades now, and it's fascinating to take a personality test, isn't it? When you answer a bunch of questions, I think this the Kiersey temperament sorter has seventy questions that you're supposed to answer really quickly without thinking too hard about them, and then you kind of add up all the numbers from these different categories, and you and you end up with this four letter personality marker for who you are. Mine. They they give a name for each one of these four-letter combinations. There's 16 of them, and mine was called The Teacher. So after I was finished with this and I was reading the description of who I'm supposed to be, I actually had—like—it was a remarkably enjoyable thing <laughs> to read a description of me that described me in kind of these disparate ways that I actually really resonated with. It was— it, I, it had kind of a powerful influence on me, and so I asked uh, Rachel Yoder, who's our marketing assistant here, and she she uh, helps get this little podcast, you know, posted and described and and out to people. Uh, she usually sits behind the glass with Adam, but I asked her to come in here because she recently took the same Kiersey temperament sorter, and I asked her to just a few minutes ago read her description, again, of her personality type. So, uh, Rachel, first of all, you have to say hello to everybody. Hello. There, she did that really well. Um, I try. <laughs> so what is your personality type, and what's the nickname for it? So I am an INTP, which is the logician. 
the logician, not the magician. Yes. The logician. Logician. And so you just a few minutes ago read this description of yourself. Yes. So how did it impact you to read the description of yourself? It was a little uncomfortable. Why? Actually, I felt like I resonated most with the parts that are actually described as weaknesses in the personality. Oh, that's why it was uncomfortable. So one of the like one of the weaknesses is that I'm really bad at providing emotional support to people (laughs) and that I tend to give tips and pointers and practical solutions, which is not very helpful when someone is just feeling sad because I'm like, well, just like be happy. So so that's not very, that's not actually practical. So you resonated with this description of weakness and you're like, oh yeah, I do that. But then it's actually a reminder of something you don't like so much. Yeah. Yeah, that's a bummer. on the bright side, Bill Gates and Albert Einstein have this personality type, so I'm not hopeless. Yeah. Well, those people are are of no help to their spouses and best friends either, though. So yeah, yeah, that's a downer. What was something that was a positive about it that you felt like, I I really do relate to that? I I don't know if it's necessarily positive, but INTPs are very logical from the the logician name, but we're also restless. Hmm. So we tend to not stick on one subject or one thing too long, which is pretty accurate to me. And I think it's kind of why I've had the adventures that I've had, because I constantly seek something new and like new experiences. Well, that's good. And you mentioned to me as you were as we were talking about this, that you also know, besides the Kiersey temperament sorter, you also know your Harry Potter sorter, yeah. the, the person that you're most like in the Harry Potter uh, lore. So who are you most like there? Yeah, somebody decided to assign all 16 personality types to Harry Potter characters, and yeah. I'm Hermione Granger, who is the probably the coolest person in the entire series. <laughs> She's played by Emma Watson, so I mean, you can't, you can't beat that. So tell me one thing that's true about Hermione Granger that is also true about you. We like books. Oh, that's good. A, so she's bookish? She's very bookish. Yeah. She's kind of a, you could say in the story, she's, she's kind of the smartest person in the room. She's kind of a nerd. Absolutely. Yeah. And that has pluses and minuses. Mm-hmm. I mean, it endears her. To Harry and Ron, Ron, mm-hmm. it endears her to them, but for other people, it puts them off a little bit. Could be, yeah. yeah. This is interesting because you know we love to categorize and understand our personality in a way. It has this kind of powerful effect that we, when we look into the mirror of a personality test and we find that there's truth about it uh, in describing who we are, it it kind of helps us understand ourselves a little bit better, but deeper than that, it helps us to feel like we're seen by something, because mostly we go through life feeling unseen, like people don't really get us, even people that are close to us. So when we take a personality test like this, it and it's accurate in some ways, it has this, at least it did for me, it has this kind of powerful impact of, oh, this thing, whatever it is, this inanimate thing, this test I just took, actually sees me. And we so much hunger to be seen that when a test does it for us, even that makes us feel good. Like, wow, I really like you, Kiersey Temperament Sorter. I, I appreciate that you see my kind of strangeness. This this desire to be seen goes really, really deep in us. It means that all of the crazy ways that I am are actually explainable. And, and if it's explainable then maybe somebody could really get me in the end. Somebody could really understand me, 
at a deeper level. So thank you, Rachel, for letting us know about how you experienced the description of your personality test. I just have to ask, though, before you go back on the other side of the glass here, when you think about your reaction to taking the personality test and getting the results back, is what I just said true? Like there's some some kind of an emotional impact from being seen by the test. Yeah, I would say so. As I was reading the description, it was it was kind of cool just to be like, oh, that's that's why I react the way that I do or act the way that I do in certain circumstances. And what what difference does it make if you understand yourself a little better through the lens of this test? What what difference does it make in your life? It makes me feel okay with how I react to things. Hmm. It's like because it's recognized by somebody else that my personality type does exist. I'm not a total weirdo. Yeah, or, you're not crazy. Yeah, if I'm they not can crazy. if they can define it, then I must not be crazy. Exactly. That's good. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. No problem. So this idea that a personality test can show us that something really gets me. Think about this for a second. What drives so many people who are in a committed marriage relationship or even a committed dating relationship to have an affair to 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 branch out and attach themselves to someone else. I think a big part of that is when you're in relationship with someone for a long time, this frustration that we have inside of not having anyone really get us, really see us for who we really are, sometimes we we develop these other relationships that promise us that, oh, maybe that person can really get me. My uh, partner doesn't, but maybe that person does because they, they're, they're seeing some aspect of me that my spouse doesn't see. And I think that drives a lot of affairs, because it's, we have this, such a deep hunger to be seen for who we are. And then they attach themselves to the new person who, who promises to see you in a way you never have, and that's true right up until they don't. And we discover, yeah, um, I'm not really, really seen by that person anyway. Well, here's a good question. How would Jesus score on a personality test like the Kiersey temperament sorter that we were just talking about? Could he be categorized into one of these 16 personality types? Here's my theory. I think if Jesus took a personality test like this one, he would implode the system, because there is a way in taking this test that you can end up with tied scores. So it, it, in, in a particular category, you're not able to nail down a, a, one of those four letters because you scored equally, and you're not supposed to be able to do that. When I took this test, I did score equally in one of these categories, and the person that was giving us the test uh, asked, did anybody have an equal score in one of the letters? And my, I raised my hand, and one other people did in a group of about 25, and the leader said, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> We're going to have to fix that. You have to take a second test to figure out which, one, uh, which way you're going to lean. So I took the second test, and when I was finished, the leader came and looked at it, and he said, well, this isn't possible. You, the, on the second test, you answered in a way that produced an opposite result from the first test, so I don't know what's going on here. You're just going to have to look at the two different personality descriptions and decide which one is yours. So inside, I thought, um, I think in I have grown over the course of the last uh, 25 years as I have 
immersed my life more in the heart of Jesus, I think that I have grown to be, uh, during that time, more like him. And as I've grown more like him, when I take a personality test like this, it's going to become more likely that I'm uncategorized um, in these four areas. Not that I'm milk toast somewhere in the middle, but that you can have two extremes that exist at the same time in you, very similar to the way Jesus has extremes existing at the same time in him. So it's hard to pin him down. Does he lean this way or that way? So Jesus is the source of all personality, because everything is made out of him. This is what we know from from Scripture, that um, all things were made God is the only one who created things out of nothing. He really created all things out of himself. So Jesus made everything out of himself, and so he is the the ultimate source of all personality, and because of that, he's beyond category. And because he's beyond category, he's also unparalleled in his ability to see us and to get us. Now let me say that again, because Jesus is beyond category when it comes to his own personality, because he's full of extremes that he lives in tension with all the time, he has a unique ability to appreciate the depths of who we are, because he's not looking through a skewed filter at us. He's looking through always a balanced filter of who we are. You you know this yourself. The reason we have these personality tests is so that we can understand how we lean and the kind of the bias that we have in life, and we realize, oh, um, not everyone's like me, and I see the world in a biased way, and I work with people that react to me in ways that kind of confuse me sometimes, and why is that? It seems so clear to me. Well, it's because they're quite different, and if I don't understand how they're different, then I don't really understand how to develop a deeper relationship with them. Well, Jesus doesn't have any of this baggage because he doesn't lean one way or another. He's perfectly balanced in his personality. But here's the, the, big, the big but here. In our attempts to relate to him, we have a hard time exa- exactly because he's beyond category, because we tend to want to relate to people through our categories. We have a more difficult time sometimes embracing all of these dissonances in him. So if he's both tender and tough, like the, the person who wrote the review of Spiritual Grit, you can hear in his review that he's really frustrated and angry even that uh, he's been presented a tent, both a tender and tough view of Jesus, and he doesn't like it because he wants it to be one or the other, and he assumes that it must be wrong if it's both. So knowing how to categorize each other helps us in our relationships— and knowing that because knowing where each of us is coming from and therefore changing how we engage that person is helpful in relationships. And yet Jesus is hard to pin down. So we crave something similar with Jesus, but he frustrates us. So it does make relating to him initially more difficult. But as Carl and I talked about in, in last week's episode, it's also the very thing that is a magnet for our heart. The fact that Jesus is not one personality type or another, but he lives beyond category in perfect balance, is what's so magnetic about him. So in the end, um, we crave kind of the, these, these personality tests uh, give us sort of the hard 
scientific feedback on ourselves. And if we're pegged correctly, it, it does produce this kind of deeper feeling of being seen, but we almost never get that from another person. Like, if you're married, have you ever said to your spouse, I can't believe after all this time you don't really know who I am still? Have you ever said that to your spouse? Or have you ever—this happens to me all the time—have you ever told a joke um, sitting around the dinner table? And right now I have a daughter in college, so we're down to three now. I have a teenage daughter who's in high school, so there's three of us around the dinner table at night, and I'll often tell a joke— and both of them will look at me like, is he serious or is he joking? Is he serious or is he joking? And I'll say, wow, after all this time, you still don't know when I'm joking and when I'm serious. So have you ever had moments like that where you you just feel like, you know, people don't really get me for who I am. And when it does happen, it's kind of like a, this rush of adrenaline when somebody actually seems to see us as we really are. So does Jesus really know who we are is a deeper question, and will anybody ever really get me is an aching question. Well, Jesus is like our personality test results, only different. He's an artist more than a scientist, because relationships require an artistic ability, which we all have embedded in us. Good relationships are more like art than they are like science. And so, because Jesus is an artist, um, his mirror about who we are comes through the lens of an artist. He's the only perfect mirror for us in life. He relates to people in a fluid, improvisational way uh, in the end. So, here's what we're going to do. Hang with me here, because the uh, title of this episode is, Will Anybody Ever Really Get Me? And we're going to go on a, a, a little side trip here first, and we'll come back to that main question. But we're going to explore a little bit of how Jesus acts both tender and tough with people that he encounters. So I thought what would be interesting is just to take a little sampler from the Gospel of John, just take the first five chapters of John and stop whenever he Jesus is engaging somebody, and look through the lens of how is Jesus both tender and tough in this encounter. So it's good for us to get close to, to how Jesus actually acts with people, because these encounters that he has with people are also the way he's encountering us this very moment. I mean, his movement in our lives looks a lot like how he encounters these people. So I thought it would be interesting to just stop every time he's encountering someone and examine um, how he's encountering them and what that person would experience in Jesus each time looking through this lens of tough and tender. So let's go to John chapter 1, and one of the first people that Jesus encounters is Nathaniel. So let me just read this little section here of when Jesus meets Nathaniel. So he's already met Peter and John and Philip, and here's where it picks up. Now, Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, hey, we found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, come and see for yourself, Philip replied. And as they approached, Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. 
Uh, how do you know about me? Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus asked him, Do you believe this just because I told you I, I had seen you under the fig tree? Uh, you'll see greater things than this. And then he said, I tell you the truth, you'll see heaven open up and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Okay, so here's this little encounter that Jesus has with Nazareth, and you can hear both tender and tough in this. The first words he says to him, he marks him. He mirrors back to Nathaniel something true about him, but it's also kind of snarky. <laughs> he says, uh, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity, and Nathaniel's taken off guard. You've never met me before, is basically what he's saying. How do you know who I am? And Jesus says, oh, I could see you already under the fig tree, uh, right before Philip found you, which uh, Nathaniel takes as a miraculous statement. How could he do this? Nathaniel is reacting to Jesus accurately mirroring back to him his own personality, and he finds it miraculous that he did. And then when he exclaims that, Jesus says, do you believe this just because I told you I'd seen you under the fig tree? You know, you're going to see greater things than this. So already, Jesus has a little bit of an edge to him. He says something that immediately is a magnet for Nathaniel, and then he has a little edge to him in the way he responds to him. Or let's look at uh, the wedding at Cana. That's in the next chapter of John. John chapter 2 starts in, in verse 1, and uh, let me just read through this. Again, think through, as, as I'm uh, reading this, this lens of tough and tender. Uh, see if you can pick out where, where both of those show up in the way that Jesus behaves in this encounter. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, uh, they have no more wine. And Jesus said, dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. So standing nearby were six stone water jars and used for Jewish ceremonial washing, each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. And it, and it, goes, on, it goes on from there, where this water has been turned into the finest wine, and the master of ceremonies is like, hey, to the bride and groom, hey, why, are you, why did you save the good wines of the last? So what I think is interesting is the first part of this, when his mother tells Jesus, you know, they run out of wine, Jesus, and she's like, what can you do about this? <laughs> and, and she knows already that he is capable of the miraculous. And his response to her, though, is, dear woman, that's not our problem. My time hasn't come. So yes, there's an obvious need at the party, but he's like, you know, I'm not going to do that. It's not my time yet. And then his, his mother sa- turns to the servants right in front of him and says, just do whatever he says. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very shrewd way she's, she's interacting with Jesus. But you can feel both the tenderness of him meeting this need for wine at this wedding, but his edge, the toughness in his tone with his mother, um, and to the whole wedding in general. Uh, if we uh, carry on in, in uh, chapter 2, in verse 13, this is the, 
verses 13 through 20, this is where Jesus clears the temple. I don't even need to read through the whole account here. Um, here he is encountering money changers in the temple, and he goes ballistic on them. He, he says, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And this is what he said after he turns over the tables and goes ballistic on all these guys and drives them out of there. And what's interesting is at the tail end of this, the disciples are trying to make sense of this suddenly, you know, ferocious, tough behavior. And here's what it says in verse 17. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. Now, the disciples were inspired by this when they realized that the Old Testament scriptures had already predicted that the Messiah would have a passion for the house of God, that it should be a place for intimate relationship, not for buying and selling stuff, making money off of disadvantaged people that were talked into buying these things so that they could be made righteous. They're, they're remembering, oh, the Messiah is going to topple that ugly system that of, of people buying and selling their righteousness. He's going to topple all of that. And they were inspired by this. So in the very moment he's behaving ferociously and, and tough with those people who are selling in the marketplace, in the temple marketplace, the, the disciples are encouraged and inspired by his behavior, tender and tough. In chapter 3, starting in verse 1, is the encounter Jesus has with Nicodemus. Let me just read a little bit of that. Um, Nicodemus comes to him one dark evening to speak with him, and he says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God's with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus goes on to say, what do you mean by that? I, I don't quite get what you're saying. How can I go back in the womb? And Jesus goes on to explain, I'm not talking about climbing back in the womb. I'm talking about being born again of the Spirit. You were born of a human. Now, Nicodemus, you also need to be born of the Spirit. And after Nicodemus hears Jesus' explanation, he says, well, how are these things possible? And Jesus replies, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? And then he goes on from there. So this whole encounter is full of kindness and patience toward Nicodemus. He's patient. Jesus is patiently explaining to Nicodemus what should be easy for him to hear, but embedded in the midst of this, he, he, he says, wait a minute, you're a respected teacher and, and you don't get this? You know what? None of you religious leaders really accept the explanations I'm giving you for things, and if you don't accept those explanations, how, are you, how do you expect to understand the deeper things here? This is a very common pattern that Jesus has as he's moving toward greater vulnerability and intimacy with someone. He has no problem saying blunt things to them in the midst of it. So let's do two more real quick. The next one's from John chapter 4, and this is a long stretch. It's uh, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. I'm not going to read you this story. We'll just kind of highlight it here again through the lens of tender and tough. Jesus is at a well outside the, the city of Sychar, 
and he meets a woman who's come there at noontime to get water because she's a notorious woman and doesn't want to be seen by the other women in town. And Jesus asks her for a drink, and uh, she's shocked by this because here's a Jewish rabbi who's speaking to a Samaritan woman. He's not supposed to do that, and he's not supposed to ask her for something like this. And so she says, so why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus says, if you knew the gift that God has for you and who you're speaking to, you'd ask me, and I would give you living water. What a tender thing, what a tender response he gives to this woman who everyone rejects and doesn't want anything to do with. Jesus' first approach to her is, can you help me? And then his second thing that he says is, I've got something that is that you're going to love. I want to give you a gift that will keep on giving. And so from the very beginning, he wants to give to this woman who know what he gives to, and everybody tries to avoid. But along the way, she finally says, yes, uh, give me this water, Jesus, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. And Jesus says, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Do you feel the edge there? In the midst of his tenderness, there's a tough edge. And it's this very dissonant tension that this woman is drawn to. You can just feel her being drawn closer into Jesus because of this tension. Okay, we'll do one last one. It's also from John chapter 4. It's uh, verses 43 through 54. And here's a, here's a little story that we never explore. Um, I'll just read you the whole thing. It's called, in my Jesus-centered Bible, the heading is, Jesus Heals an Official Son. And at the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He, he himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown, so he's headed back to his, his hometown region, his hometown state. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything he did there. Well, as he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. Story we just explored. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. And Jesus asked, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? And the official, I just love this response, the official's like, Complain about me later, Jesus. Uh, He pleads with him, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. And then Jesus told him, Go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. And he discovers on the way, a servant comes out to greet him and says, your son was healed. And the the man asks him, when exactly was he healed? And it was the exact moment that Jesus had spoken to him that his son would live. But Jesus' response to this guy who comes hoping he'll get healing for his son is, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? It sounds irritable, doesn't it? (laughs) But there's a toughness in, in his response to him that is for a purpose. He's trying to make a point that, you know what, I'm not a vending machine for healing and miracles. All of the healing and miracles is really done so that you will start to believe and start to understand that I am the promised Messiah. I want to invite you to know me. I don't want you to treat me like a vending machine. And nevertheless, I see your need and your son's healed. <laughs> so here, those are just some examples in the first five chapters of John about the dissonance that Jesus lives in and creates for the people around him. So 
I've said that this tension that that is very evident in Jesus in every encounter is actually a magnet for these people who encounter him. They, they are drawn into this. And actually, in every case, these people discover something true about who they are through these encounters. They discover in Jesus's tension between tough and tender a true mirror of who they are. So it's this dissonance in Jesus, his beyond-category personality, that really does surface our true self. And when our true self is surfaced in these encounters with him, he delights in what gets surfaced. That's because we discover ourselves most truly in relationship, and as I said before, a relationship is an art, not a science. So the closer we get to Jesus's tender and tough heart, the more our own true self is unlocked and celebrated. Better than a personality test is the intimately accurate way that Jesus begins to reflect our true self, maybe a self that's deeper than a personality test can get at. Um, I've mentioned before on the podcast that my friend Ned Erickson once told me something soon after I had met him, and I really loved Ned. I loved his heart. I loved everything he was about. And we were we had that kind of honeymoon phase when you meet a new person and you realize, oh, that's a kindred spirit. I really like this person. Um, uh, after spending a day with Ned toward the end of the day, he was you know uh, energized by this relationship too. And he said, "Oh, Rick, I want to share something with you. I think you're going to love. It's kind of a it's kind of a formula for our life with Jesus." And I was like suddenly repelled. I'm like, oh, Ned, I hate formulas and recipes. I can't believe after all this you're going to give me a formula for what it, what it's like to follow Jesus. And he said, and he, and he kind of laughed, and he said, well, I, actually, when I think about it, it's not really a formula. It's more simply an expression of the truth. It's kind of a progression. And I said, all right, tell me what it is. And what he told me next, I will never forget, because I, I when he said it, I thought, Wow, that is so true. So here's what I call the progression. This is what Ned told me years ago. Here's how it goes. Get to know Jesus well, because the more you know him, the more you'll love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll want to follow him. And the more you follow him, the more you'll become like him. And the more you become like him, the more you become yourself. Wow, is that last line the more you become like him, the more you become yourself, that totally took me off guard and upended all of the ways I thought up to that point in my life. Because I'd grown up in the church, and you hear more of Jesus, less of me, and if I get closer to Jesus, who I am will sort of dissipate in favor of him, and that's that's really the goal. And it's so frustrating, because I can't get myself out of the way. I just wish, you know... Jesus had more of me, and there was less of me, and what Ned was saying in this progression, I had actually experienced in my own life. As I had gotten closer to Jesus in a progressive way, in an immersive way, I was discovering who I was more clearly in the mirror of his um, dichotomous, uncategorized personality. The closer I got to him, the more I became like him, the more his scent uh, rubbed off on me, the more I could see myself for who I really was, and I operated out of that distinct, unique personality that he had given me. 
The more you become like him, the more you become yourself. This is the miraculous mirror of Jesus. This is something a personality test can never give you, because uh, a personality test, as you draw nearer to it, it will not release you into your uniqueness the way Jesus releases us into our uniqueness. He sort of digs and digs and digs and finds the, the true essence of who we are. Um, I love how Eugene Peterson puts this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, in the message version of the Bible. Just love how he phrases this. Here's, here's, what he sa- here's how he uh, paraphrases what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living. Part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. And what Paul is saying here, and in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, he's saying that Jesus studies us in our detail, but he's not studying us like a cop would study us, like trying to catch us and doing something wrong. No, he's studying us to delight in us, to reveal in us, to surface us for who we really are. I love it, the, the very first uh, phrase that Peterson paraphrases here from Paul is, it's in Christ that we find out what, who we are, and what we are living for. Are there any two more fundamental things in human life than to find out who we really are and what we're really living for? This is a personality test on steroids. And how do we discover this in Jesus? I think the progression that I just read to you just a moment ago is really how this happens. As we get closer and closer to the heart of Jesus and get closer to the only true mirror that we have in life, we discover really who we are and what we were made to do. So to close off here, how might this work in everyday life? What could you do today to draw closer to the mirror of Jesus and to understand who you are through his mirror, through his eyes? What can you practically do? We don't want this just to be a rhetorical truth. What I just started thinking about some of the things that I do to try to lean into this, especially when I'm wrestling with who I am. And if you're like me, and you're an honest, self-aware person, you probably wrestle with yourself every day, (laughs) aspects of things that you really have a hard time with. Rachel already shared, when she read the description of her personality type, the thing that she resonated the most with was some of the things that pointed out the quote-unquote weaknesses of the personality type. And those are things that we wrestle with. We wish they weren't so true. We wish we were different than that. So when we're in that place, we're also wondering, not just will anybody ever really get me, the the real meaning behind that is, will anybody ever really delight in me? Will anybody ever really see me in a way that causes them delight and we hunger for that. It's, the, it's maybe the deepest hunger we have to be enjoyed in truth. We don't like flippant or cliched ways that people uh, give feedback to us or our affirmation. In fact, affirmation that isn't personal and intimate and vulnerable, we tend to just discount. Do you ever get a birthday card, for instance, from somebody 
who um, went to the trouble to get a card for you, but in the card they just write, happy birthday, hope you had a great day. Um, honestly, those are the birthday cards that go into the recycle bin pretty quickly in our house. Not because we don't appreciate somebody sent it to us, but it doesn't have real meaning when somebody doesn't use their words to reflect back what they delight in you about, or if they use sort of a general way of describing that. So what can you do on a kind of an everyday basis, it's just part of your normal everyday life, to invite the mirror of Jesus into your life to help to mark you for who you are. So here's some ways that, that make sense to me. I often will ask Jesus, especially if I'm struggling with something about myself, I will use that as sort of a red flag, and I'll pause, and I'll simply say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, what word are you using to describe me today? What word are you using to describe me today? After I ask the question, I wait like a little kid would, with my, you know, metaphorically with my hands open and my heart open, and I wait for him to respond. And whatever word that kind of pops into my head, I just try to receive it. Now, one thing that's really true is that in these circumstances, because Jesus does delight in who I am, this, this is part of what uh, is good to remember. Whatever comes my way, it's not going to be a negative, critical remark. It's going to be something that he enjoys about me. So I invite him to simply mark who I am, because it's a, it's a weapon against the lies that I'm struggling with. Another question I, I ask Jesus is, well, what do I need to know about myself today, Jesus? What do I need to know about myself today? And then I wait to see what he surfaces in me, what I need to pay attention to. Sometimes this is diagnostic, and in this case, I'm inviting him to give me sometimes a little harder feedback, like he might point out something that is underlying my current struggle that I really need to know, and if I knew it, I'd be free of it. Another thing that I will often pause, especially when I'm wrestling with who I am, maybe it's because somebody has just reflected back to me a very poor mirror of myself, and I'm struggling, or maybe I've disappointed myself by something I've done, so I'm struggling. So I'll ask Jesus, I'm struggling with lies about myself. What's true about me? I'm struggling with lies about myself right now. What's true about me, Jesus? And then I wait, expecting and hoping that he will reflect back to me something that's true about me, and then I accept what comes. The last thing I thought of, I do this more rarely, but it's, it's the most playful thing that I do with him in this, in this arena. I'll ask, what story about me do you like to tell the Trinity, Jesus? <laughs> like, does Jesus, you know, metaphorically sit around my campfire with the, with the Spirit and the Father and sometimes tell stories about us? And these stories are the stories that he really delights in. And so I think it's true. And, and so playfully, I'll ask Jesus, what story about me do you like to tell? Like, if you think about this with one of your kids, do you have favorite stories you like to tell about your kids that, that show your delight in them? Like, you tell your friends, oh, you wouldn't believe what uh, Lucy did the other night. It's just so much like her. And then you tell the story. What if Jesus has a story like that about you? So sometimes I will do this if I'm in a kind of a playful mood and an expectant mode, I'll ask him, what story do you like about me do you like to tell? And then he'll surface in me something I've done or said that 
resonates. And I, I remember it, and it's a shared experience the two of us have together, but he's trying to say, that's the one. I love that story about you, Rick, because. <laughs> so the, the other way, on an everyday basis, that, you know, here's the elephant in the living room, the progression that I read to you before suggests that in an everyday way, if we are drawing near to the Jesus, who is both tender and tough, in an everyday way, so for spending time just marinating in any of the stories that I just read today, you could go to any encounter Jesus has, any engagement he has, and use this lens of how is Jesus both tender and tough in this encounter. When we do things like that, we draw near to his heart, and in the progression it says as we do that, we become more like him. And the more we become like him, we, the more we become ourselves. So the, the deeper we sink into Jesus, the closer we get to him, the more clarity we have about ourselves in his mirror. Like, you, you can get an idea looking into a mirror from across the room of what you look like, but if you get really close to that mirror, you can see everything about you. And this is what Jesus is inviting us to do. Get close to me, and you get close to an accurate mirror of who you are. All right, gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail, on our Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com page. You're just going to find our podcast section there. You're going to look here for Season 3, Episode 23. We'll have links to everything I talked about today here so, so that you can explore those things. And, you know, don't forget, go out and get yourself a copy of Spiritual Grit. It's about six weeks since it was released today. I invite you to read that, and then uh, post a review on Amazon or post a comment on our podcast page. I'd love to be in dialogue and conversation with you about this, so don't forget to do that. And and uh, last week when we talked about with Carl Medeiros, we uh, invited you to to take a risk and go on an adventure and come to the Simply Jesus Gathering in Colorado in July. So I want to reiterate that invitation. If you want to come hang out with people who are ruined by and ruined for Jesus for three days, some great worship music, some fantastic, surprising speakers, and a beautiful environment. Um, there's a lot of laughter, and there's tears, and there's depth and insight. It's a beautiful three-day gathering. We'll put a link on our page to sign up for that as well. So don't forget, you can make sure you don't miss any of these podcasts by uh, subscribing to us on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And gang, we'll talk to you again next week. 